This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. And send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, because we want to hear them, and we think the country wants to hear them, too. You're the hour in Our American Stories. And this next story is about the rule of law, about something that all of us have experienced at some time or another, getting a traffic ticket. Adam McLeod is a law professor at Faulkner, and that's in Alabama. And as you'll hear, a stickler for justice. Here's Adam. My particular story begins when I received in the mail a couple of years ago a traffic camera ticket. I knew that I hadn't actually done anything wrong because I wasn't even driving the car. In fact, at the time that I was alleged to have broken these laws, I was in a faculty meeting at the law school where I teach. So I decided I was going to challenge this ticket on the principle of the thing. I was given a day to appear in court, and on that day I went over to our local municipal court and I sat down amongst all those who had been charged with various crimes and those who had received tickets like mine. And about an hour later, a bailiff came out and herded into a corner of the courtroom those of us who had appeared for this offense of owning a vehicle that had passed by a camera at too high a speed. So we all waited there, first for the clerk and then to be called individually to meet the clerk. Now, some people in our group decided to just pay the fine and be done with it. Others of us requested a hearing with a magistrate judge. Of course, this evoked an exasperated response from the clerk. And then we were required to wait around for the magistrate to show up to conduct the hearings. Then we each had to wait even more for our turn to appear before the magistrate. Now, the magistrate ruled against me in a rather summary hearing, so I decided that I was going to appeal the judgment up to the county-level court, known as the circuit court. Now, I went to the clerk's office and decided I was going to try to file my appeal, and the clerk's office made me wait in the lobby even more. And when they finally saw me, they insisted that I provide a criminal appeal bond. I pointed out that they had claimed this was not a crime that I had committed, but they were charging me with a civil violation. But no matter, no appeal bond, no appeal, they said. So I pulled out my checkbook. Nope, we don't accept checks. Come back with the amount of your ticket in cash. I left the courthouse, found an ATM, pulled out the amount of my ticket in cash and returned, and was left waiting in the lobby again. Finally, I was readmitted to the clerk's office. I saw a different employee who now told me that I had to pay twice the amount of my ticket in cash. So I left, found another ATM, came back, more waiting, before I was finally allowed to file a criminal appeal bond for a crime I never committed. When I got home, I decided to call the city attorney to see if she really wanted to go through with this. And it turns out she does. Now, one doesn't always expect municipal officials to be paragons of lawfulness, but I was a little bit jarred to encounter a city attorney who really didn't know much about the law or her constitutional duties. A really basic distinction in the law, particularly when you're hauled into court, 
is between what are known as civil proceedings and criminal proceedings. Civil actions are designed to remedy injuries that people cause each other wrongly. So for example, if I were to trespass on my neighbor's lawn or commit a tort against him by punching him in the face, he could bring an action against me personally. Criminal actions are actions taken against people who have acted culpably against the public law in some way by breaking what are known as criminal laws, such as criminal prohibitions against stealing or perjury. I asked the city attorney whether this was a criminal action or a civil action. She replied, it's hard to explain it in those terms. So I said, well, okay, which do you intend to proceed under? The rules of criminal procedure or the rules of civil procedure? She said, we're going to go under the rules of criminal procedure because this is a criminal case. At this point, I pointed out that to start a criminal case, the state has to provide certain due process. It has to provide a charge and an indictment. It has to show that it has probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. But she replied that none of those things would happen because this is a civil action. So I could expect to be served with a civil action complaint then, right? No, no, she said, as she'd already explained, we would proceed under the criminal rules. I decided to take a different tack. I asked whether I was alleged to have violated the criminal law or to have committed some private wrong. She said I had violated the rules of the road. And she explained, you were caught on a camera speeding. I asked her if she had any evidence that I was caught on a camera speeding. Of course, she didn't. And she replied that she didn't need evidence. I was deemed liable because an automobile that I own was caught speeding. I pointed out that the ticket was issued against me, not against my car. But I'm liable, she said, because I loaned my vehicle to someone who speeds, whatever that means. So I asked her where in the laws it prohibits me from loaning my vehicle and how I'm supposed to know in advance that any particular person is going to use my car to speed. Agitated by my semantics, she advised me to raise any issues that I had with the trial court and then hung up on me. I knew this was going to be fun. And what a story this is. And by the way, we're all laughing here because it's happened to all of us. And this conflation of civil and criminal law and the way our cities and community Police systems use traffic tickets as a revenue grab, and we know it. We can feel it. It's the end of the month, and there they are. It's not about our safety. It's about the money. And this city attorney, well, she ran up against a pesky attorney, and something tells me there's a lot more to this story. It's Adam McLeod's story, but it's so many of our story as we relate to these, well, pesky civil-slash-criminal-slash-civil violations. And I loved that this poor city attorney really couldn't articulate the difference between criminal and civil offense. When we come back, Adam McLeod's story here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and Adam McLeod's story. And this is a legal yarn. I mean, it may not be John Grisham territory, but I'm telling you, if you're listening, I know you're really interested. How does he beat this ticket? How does he beat this city attorney? Well, let's go back to Adam for more. Before the trial, I decided to file what's known as a motion to dismiss. This is a motion which calls the attention of the court to the weakness of the prosecution's argument and asks the court to rule that there is no legal basis for the prosecution. Now, I tried to make this motion interesting because I wanted the trial judge to pay attention. In fact, I made the motion rather over the top. I alluded to political philosophers like Hobbes and Locke. I quoted the American Declaration of Independence. I suggested that the success of the American experiment in ordered liberty was at stake in my case. I resorted to superlatives, did all the things that I tell my students never to do. We went to trial. The city produced one witness, the police officer, who had signed the affidavit, which was included in my ticket. Now, when he was being asked questions by the city attorney on what's known as direct examination, he explained that the traffic camera system is actually run by a corporation in another state called American Traffic Solutions. That American Traffic Solutions chooses photographs from the various photographs they receive through their equipment and then recommends to the Montgomery Police Department, where I live, to initiate actions against particular vehicle owners, and then gets paid for its work. Then it was my turn to ask the police officer questions. I stood up and asked a few targeted questions. This is known to lawyers as cross-examination. I established that the police officer was not present at the time of the alleged violation. He has no photographic evidence that I was driving the car, much less that anyone was driving the car. There were no witnesses. He does not know where Adam McLeod was at the time of the alleged violation. And then finally, I asked the concluding question, the one question I always teach my students never to ask. But I thought there's no harm in being dramatic in a case like this, since I was doing it for the principle of the thing. I asked the police officer, so you signed an affidavit under the pains and penalties of perjury alleging probable cause to believe that Adam McLeod committed a violation of traffic laws without any evidence that that was so. Without hesitating, he answered, yes. This surprised both of us. The police officer had just admitted that he committed perjury. It also surprised the judge who looked up from his desk for the first time. The police officers in the back of the room also paid attention For their colleague had just testified that he had perjured himself in service to a city government and a mysterious faraway corporation whose officers probably earned many times his salary. At this point, the city rested its case, and I renewed my motion to dismiss the case, and the judge immediately granted it. Victory, vindication, well, sort of. I tried to recover my doubled appeal bond but I was told that the clerk was not authorized to give me my money. Naturally, the law authorizing these proceedings contains no procedure for return of the bond in the event that the accused wins, and in fact, imposes on the court no duty to return the appeal bond at the end of the proceedings. 
it seems that the lawmakers never would have imagined that anyone would actually beat the system. The clerk advised me to write a motion for the return of my appeal bond. Weeks later, when the court still had not ruled on my motion, I was told that I could file a motion asking for a ruling on my earlier motion. I bowed to absurdity, and I did so. Still nothing happened for almost two years, until finally I received in the mail a check for twice the amount of the ticket, equal to the appeal bond I had paid. The city kept all the accrued interest. Now, why does this matter? Why did I bother to go through all the trouble, jumping through all the hoops, and putting up with all of the obstacles which the city put in my way to challenging this traffic ticket? Well, traffic camera tickets tend to be popular in many places for a number of reasons, but I think they're profoundly unjust. They're popular in part because they appeal to a law and order impulse that we all share. We want to stop nefarious evildoers and scofflaws who jeopardize the health of motorists and the Republic generally by sliding through yellow lights or trying to beat a red and therefore endanger the lives and health of others. On the other hand, these traffic cameras don't distinguish between scofflaws and people who are actually trying to obey the law and who committed de minimis infraction by driving through empty streets at 30 miles an hour in compliance with the speed limit and who end up a couple inches over the white line when the light turns red. Also, traffic cameras don't always produce probable cause that a particular person has committed a crime, as in my case. There is no evidence, in fact, to get around this problem, several states have created this new category of law, which I encountered in my case, what they call a civil violation of a criminal law. And using this nifty device, a city can charge you of a crime without any witnesses, without any criminal due process protections like probable cause determinations or an indictment, and without any civil due process protections like any showing that anyone's been injured as a result of your actions. So in short, the government officials and their private contractors have at their disposal the powers of both criminal and civil proceedings, and they're excused from the due process and constitutional requirements of both criminal and civil law. It's a neat trick. Equally troubling, I think, is that municipal governments are authorized to make an owner of a car answer a civil suit even though the city has not suffered any particular injury. Usually, no fellow citizen can haul you into court without first at least alleging, if not showing, that you wrongly caused some injury to that person. And a city cannot lawfully do to you what your fellow citizen cannot do to you. It has no power to haul you into court if it suffered no injury. And if a driver rolls through a yellow light at an empty intersection and fails to cross the line before the light turns red, when the streets are empty, no one's injured, least of all the city. In my case, the city attorney argued that the city has the power to haul me into court because someone exceeded the speed limit while driving my car. Now, it's certainly true that all citizens have a duty not to break criminal laws with culpable intent. But 
The American experiment in ordered liberty and the rule of law means that we owe that duty not to the city, but to each other. If we breach the duty, the city prosecutes crimes on behalf of the people and must give us criminal due process. The city has to produce evidence, for example. This is American Constitutionalism 101. Now, I wrote about this encounter with the city government in an essay that ended up attracting national media attention. My essay also attracted the attention of state legislatures who repealed the traffic camera law in my state. The uh, Montgomery mayor remained defiant for some time before finally ending the program and announcing that the city will no longer use car-based traffic cameras, though it's going to continue to use stationary cameras mounted at intersections near traffic lights. So my story ends well. It's not ended as well for other Americans who don't have the time or the expertise to challenge programs such as this. And I think this is unfortunate. Traffic camera laws seem like minor, insignificant intrusions on liberty. And so many people fail to grasp that they're actually really, really significant constitutional infringements. They reflect a profoundly mistaken view of American constitutionalism. And that is so true. And thank you, Adam McLeod, for just sticking it out and sticking it out for all of us, because it's so true. If you can do this, what else can you do? I think that's the point. And contracting with a private company to, well, just get some money into the pockets of a local mayor, because that's what's going on here, and everybody knows it, and we're all resentful of this, actually, because those police should be used to stop rapists and murder and actual harms to we the people, not just sitting over a hill waiting for you to do 11 miles an hour in a 10-mile-an-hour speed limit zone and just hit you that day because they had a quota to meet. And by the way, I've talked to any number of cops who hate it. They hate being forced to do this and to basically find their own citizens to meet a budget quota. This is Lee Habib, Adam McLeod's story. And my goodness, anyone who's ever gotten a ticket from one of these electronic devices, our stories too, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of Ben Craddock. Ben grew up in Macomb, Mississippi, not too far from where we broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. He played football at Ole Miss and now runs the company his father started, which owns and operates over 50 convenience stores across the state. Ben's passion, however, is for service and specifically mentoring youth who he hopes can learn from his experiences. His story is one with hardship, hard work, and hard lessons as a continuing theme. Here's Ben. Well, football for me, sports in general, I love sports. And um, I was a fat kid. I'm going to be honest with y'all, I was a a chunk. I uh, I was that kid who... 
I love, you know, I've always, I was always an aggressive, aggressive, aggressive kid. I love to fight and tangle up with older kids and to get beat up. And I'm not saying I'm tough. Trust me, I'm not tough. But um, I was a fat kid that got picked on a lot, got bullied. I know what it feels like to be left out. But I've always had aggression, and, and that comes from the way I grew up. You know, I didn't grow up in... My household was a uh, was a godly household, but with every household, there's there's things sometimes that you know the, out, the outside world does not see. But I've always loved contact. I like hitting people. You know, we used to dress up all the time in our little Rydell uh, pants and helmets that you get at Walmart or, or Roses or wherever, and just I would love just knocking kids out that are and little kids, not bigger kids, the little kids in our in our neighborhood. And um, once organized sports, especially peewee football, is what we had back in the day, it was done through the city. And when I was old enough to play, I want to say it was uh, 10, which was uh, fifth grade, is when you could play contact sports. Well, I wanted to play running back, but I was too chubby. And so I played (laughs) offensive line and D-line my first year, and I loved it. And I played a little fullback, but I was pretty athletic for a chubby kid. And so, into my second year, the chubbiness kind of came off, and they had me at uh, at running back, and I played middle linebacker. And um, I got traded, and I was on the worst team in the league, but we had a, a kid named Cooper Carlisle who – Played DN at, at Macomb High School. Cooper was 6'6, about 275, 280. Played at University of Florida, won a na- national championship. Played 16 years in the NFL. He played for the Denver Broncos and ended his career with the Oakland Raiders. So Cooper was my guy. Cooper was the guy I would hide behind and get sacks. Because, I mean, he was, Cooper was, that, he was an athletic guy, just an athlete to be that big. But Cooper was on our team, and so we got we didn't have a very good team, but we had a couple guys that could really go. And um, as I as I I guess got into um, junior high and high school, you know your body changes. I wasn't a fat kid anymore, but but I worked out all the time to to try to shed those pounds because I didn't like to get picked on. I didn't like that. Have you ever had that feeling of? of um, you know, feel like you're alone and, and that, you know, you can't get through this. You, you can. You can get through this. I promise you. Um, I went through it all. I promise you I did. It's a it's a lonely feeling, but to me, it built it, it built a lot of character in me. It made me who I am today. It, it made me have a heart uh, for others that maybe are different because I'm different. We're all different, but some people don't think they are. They think they're better than others, and that's fine, but I always tell kids when I speak to them, be different. Be who you are. Um, because that's how God made you. You know, going through sports, you know, I played baseball. You know, I was a four-year letterman playing baseball. I played center field. And uh, I love baseball. I played soccer. I was goalie for our soccer team. I ran track. Sometimes they would have times when I could actually, we would play a game and I could, run, I could go to the track and run the relay. You know, I was a part of the relay team. So sometimes I got to do that. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I got faster 
I was kind of a tweener kid. You know, I really wasn't an SEC player, um, but I was, I was, you know, Conference USA, just a tweener. You know, um, if I was about 210, 220, I, I, I you know, would probably been, I guess I, had, I would have had more offers. But I had, you know, offers from Louisiana Tech, USM, Nichols State, you know, and so I committed to Louisiana Tech my senior year. Um, and they signed me as a DB um, or a hybrid linebacker and punter because I, you know, I was a very good punter. And um, I was all state twice uh, in, at Macomb. So I always had a strong leg. But I, that aggression, I was a very good defensive player. Up until, I guess, a week before sign day, I didn't, I had no connection with Ole Miss at all. My brother went to Ole Miss, but I, I kind of went to Mississippi State. I went to all the Mississippi State baseball camps. LSU, I went to all the LSU baseball camps with Skip Bertman, <clears throat> just because it was so close to, you know, Macomb. So, you know, i never forget this. It's kind of cool story. So I got a call from Coach Tommy Tuberville probably a week and a half before signing day. I'm all set to go to Louisiana Tech. I've been committed to Tech for about three months. I was going to start from week one. Had everything lined up. Ole Miss comes knocking. So at first my dad wouldn't let Ole Miss in the door. He wouldn't even answer the phone. But they scheduled a visit to our home, and Coach Tuberville brought four of his coaches with him. And they sat in our house for about five hours. And we talked, we talked, and we talked. And the problem was, at that time, Ole Miss only had 12 scholarships to offer because we were just going on probation. So they could only sign 12 kids for the next two years, which, you know, usually you sign 25, 26 kids. So being a punter, they wanted me just as a punter. Well, the odds of me getting a scholarship are not very good. So, so my dad kept saying, well, he's got a full ride here, here, and here. So you're saying my son's not good enough to go to Ole Miss. You know, if he, if he was good enough, you would give him a scholarship. No, well, we're going to do a two. You pay for two years, and then we'll put him on scholarship for three. So anyway, they left. And my dad's like, oh, well, I'm glad they're gone because we are not going to Ole Miss. There's no way you're going to be in Ole Miss trouble. Well, me being a kid and all my friends were going to Ole Miss, my wheels started turning and about three days before signing day, I was very confused, like most kids are going through recruiting. And Coach Don Dunn, who was my recruiter for Ole Miss, came to my Macomb High School and to meet with my mom and my dad and myself. Well, my dad didn't show up. So it was just me and my mom. We met in her room. You know, she was a school teacher. About seven o'clock in the morning. So we're sitting there talking, and, and my whole time thinking, you know, he's wasting his time. I am not going to Ole Miss. There's no way I'm going to Ole Miss. Da, 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 da. Well, he made a statement to me that changed my direction of my course of my life. He, uh, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, Craddock, you can go to Louisiana Tech and have a great career and have a great time. 
He said, when you're on that plane flying back from playing whoever, you're going to be, be eating hamburger steak and green beans and maybe mashed potatoes, maybe mashed potatoes. I'm thinking, okay. And he said, but if you come to Ole Miss, when we're flying back home from playing at Auburn or Alabama, you'll have a filet, cooked medium rare, however you like it, or fresh green beans and real, real mashed potatoes. And I looked at him, I was like, I'm coming to Ole Miss, Coach. So I completely flipped over a steak. And, uh, you know, that's what's so crazy about recruiting there's no magic formula to recruiting. You got an 18, 17-year-old kid that doesn't know anything. And a comment like, I, seriously, to this day, I still rather have steak than a hamburger, a hamburger steak. Um, and I tell kids that when they, you know, they start talking about recruiting with me, and I'm going, look, you got to go where your heart tells you to go. And, and for me, I wanted to go where there was steak. And so that little thing right there, I, I wasn't thinking about plan time. I wasn't thinking about how to pay for my first two years. I wouldn't think about anything except I want to be where the best are. I want to be at an SEC school where the best, where they're the best of everything. Forget La Tech, and I love La Tech, and I love the coaches there still that were there. But to me, you, you got to go where you're going to enjoy it. And and I and I was kind of starting to lean towards Ole Miss, but I didn't really think it was an option. But when he said that comment to me, I flipped. And that day, our coach, my, my recruiter from La Tech, drove down to Macomb, and I went into hiding for two days. I told my parents, you're not going to find me. And so, anyway, on signing day, they had this big event at our school. Well, I refused to sign. I was so confused again. I went back to that, oh, no, oh, no, it hit me. And so they had this huge celebration. All these kids were signing. You have that one friend that you grew up with that you did everything with from, you know, uh, riding your four-wheeler into the lake, going fishing, just uh, being kids. You know, we were just kids, uh, always outside. My best friend, his name was Carr Haskins. He went to Parkland Academy. I went to Macomb, which is the public school in, in Macomb. He actually came to my school and found me. And he said, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know, Carr. I, I really don't know what I'm going to do. He said, well, I'm not going to sign until you sign. Well, then our friend Missy, who played tennis at Ole Miss, she said, we're going to wait for you. We're going to do it together. So the next day, we all three signed. And they didn't know. Carr didn't. He didn't care where I was. He's like, dude, just go where you want to go. You know, I want you to be at Ole Miss, but, you know, I want you to be happy. So we just want to do it together. I want to be with you and support your decision no matter what. He missed his big day because of my confusion and and me not knowing where what I want. He knew I was struggling with my decision. So he missed everything they were doing for him at Park Lane Academy to come be with me. So the next day, you know, woke up. <clears throat> I had my mind, I'm going to go to Ole Miss, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And, uh, I remember, you know, it was, my mom was happy, my dad was mad, he couldn't understand what I was doing. But it it all turned out, you know, I got to Ole Miss, you know, I got to play, I led her three years. I, you know, it was, it was a fun part of my life, 
But I tell these athletes all the time when I speak to them, sports, they end. Like, it ends. Either college, high school, college, or NFL. Once it ends, you know, where are you? And who are you? So for me, I had to figure out who, who, who am I? Like, who am I as an individual? And my friend Carr, he is a huge part of, of my life, uh, my story. He lived life to the fullest. Everybody liked Carr. Not everybody liked me, but everybody liked Carr because he was, uh, he was a genuine guy, always smiling, you know, didn't meet a stranger. I mean, he loved life. He was always giving back to others. I remember one time there was a kid at, at, at Fernwood Country Club who didn't have much at all, and it was our freshman year. And he was a big Ole Miss fan, and was talking to Carr about his clubs and what 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 was he using? You know, I think the kid was probably twelve. And um, Carr, next thing I knew, Carr ended up giving this kid his clubs and his bag, everything. And so we get in the car, and I was like, uh, what just happened? And he's like, dude, he, he didn't have anything. Like, I, I'll just go get some more clubs. Like, and I said, yeah, but that was the bag that Ole Miss gave me. He's like, yeah, but I can get other bags. So it's just things. And, and turn out this kid actually ended up playing golf at Alabama. And I've talked to this kid numerous times, and it is amazing that gesture changed that kid's life because the, apparently this kid was going through a lot of bad things that we didn't know about was getting abused at home just awful things that a child shouldn't go through but th- that act of kindness that Carr displayed that day it, it, could, it completely changed this kid's life July the 26th which is my birthday um, my sophomore year, I get a call that night that that um that my best friend um you know that that day I, I talked to him and and was trying to get him to come to Oxford to go out with all of us. We were gonna go celebrate, have a good time, you know. And he wanted to stay home with his girlfriend. They were going to go to Dixie Springs, Lake Dixie Springs, and just kind of hang out on the boat and stuff. I remember like it was yesterday, my, my roommate came in my room, my bedroom, and it was around 4.30 in the morning. And he said, hey, Craddock, Craddock, you need to, you need to wake up. And, and I said, what's wrong, Reagan? What's wrong? And he said, man, you need, you need to come listen to the answer machine. And so... I got up and I was like, what's wrong? I was like, man, I, I, I can't tell you. You just need to listen to it. Your dad left you a message. So I went, went into our living room and pressed play. And um, it was my dad. And he said, Ben, um, car was in a wreck. And uh, he didn't make it. He passed away this morning. I can still, there, you know, there's, there's certain events in your life that you can't get out of your uh, your mind, good or bad, that kind of helps shape you. And that event, it, it completely, throughout the years, changed me. A lot of the things I do or our company, things we do, 
I do it with in memory of my friend Carl Haskins because he was always giving back to others. Everything that family went through, like it, I don't, I, I still can't comprehend it to this day because 10 years to that date, his sister Susan Haskins, um, and to back that up, Carl, he, he passed away when his. His forerunner went off a little bridge at Dixie Springs, and it had probably maybe six feet of water uh, in a little creek, and it turned upside down. He couldn't get out. His girlfriend got out. Um, Ten years to basically that date, his sister had an accident. She's with three kids. Their car flips over. She gets pinned. She dies the same way. So a lot of us had to relive that moment again 10 years later and and I'm sitting there looking at his parents and 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 I just it's you know it's you know what do you say but his mother was just you know God's got a plan yeah I don't know the plan but I trust him and to be so strong in your faith to where you lose two kids the same way basically two 10 years apart but I talk to Miss Barry all the time and and her faith is, is what kept her, keeps her um, grounded. And you've been listening to Ben Craddock, and what a story. My goodness, he picks Ole Miss as the school to go to over a stake, basically. Just funny. And then everything turns, because my goodness, to get a message like that as a young man, it shattered him and actually shaped him as well. Everything that he did in terms of generosity, kindness, All were done because of his friend Carr, who had died in a wreck. Ten years later, the same thing could happen to one family, to one mother and father. It's just inconceivable how people get through it. But again, the mother did and taught him a lot, taught Ben a lot about faith and the power of faith in these moments where, well, life tests us and tests us to the limit. Ben Craddock's story a beautiful story. And again, send yours to OurAmericanStories.com. And by the way, if you like what you hear, we are a nonprofit. And always we're looking for support from our listeners. $5, $10, $25, whatever you can spare. We work hard to bring you these stories. Not the ugly, not the bad, not the insipid. The stories that, well, we all want to hear. Like Ben Craddock's. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. There's a donate button. Give what you can. Ben Craddock's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com, or click the Our Stories on our website, and right there you'll have a little place where you can write in about a 500-word summary of your story. Send it to us. They're some of our favorite stories, your stories. Our next one is brought to us with permission from the Veterans History Project at the Atlanta History Center. The Veterans History Project provides unedited first-person interviews from men and women who've served our great country. Today, we'll be hearing from Oliver Halley, 
who will share with us a bit about his experiences in the United States Navy during the Vietnam War. We will also be hearing about the unearthed family secret that would forever change his life. Here's Oliver. I grew up in a small family. My mother and father were only children, so I had no aunts, no uncles, no cousins. I had two brothers. My older brother, who died in 2009, he was two years older, and my younger brother, who's uh, almost two years younger than I am, he still lives in New York. Um, my father and his family emigrated from Nazi Germany in 1935 or so. And my mother was born in Brooklyn, but her father was born and raised in Germany and came here as a young man. And my mother's mother was born in Brooklyn as well. And we moved to Brooklyn when I was a baby, so I have no memory of where I was born whatsoever. My first memories begin in Brooklyn, and then we moved to Staten Island when I was seven, and that's where I uh, grew up uh, too. My father and mother built a legend around our family. Uh, again, I knew that my father and his family had moved from, uh, emigrated from Nazi Germany, but uh, they built a legend around that. And the legend had to do with that uh, his father, my grandfather, who I didn't know, he was killed in a car accident in 1939, I did know that. And he was a prominent surgeon in New York and the legend was that they resisted the Third Reich. My father was an under, in an underground movement, and um, it was all very romantic. And that was the story that uh, I grew up with. But uh, when I was growing up, um, everybody went in the military. That was just the way it was. A lot of people don't know that the draft began in June of 1940. And it didn't end until, I think, roughly 1975. So even during the peacetime between the Korean War and Vietnam, uh, people were being drafted. In my high school, you know, people either volunteered or went into the military, and it was acceptable. Nobody even thought about avoiding it. If they, got, if they didn't want to join, um, they were drafted and they didn't complain. That's just the way it was. And I grew up in that environment that uh, post-World War II. You see a lot of veterans from World War II. During parades, it was always a big deal, and it was—it's just what you did. That it was your turn to step up when it came time. So there was never any doubt in my mind I would go into service. And growing up in New York and seeing the ships in New York Harbor, and, um, I was attracted to the Navy. It just—it was just there was never any doubt that's where I wanted to go. So <clears throat> my friend Kenny, I don't—I don't remember where, but somewhere he heard about swift boats, and I said, "What's a swift boat?" And he described it as best he could. And I uh, said, I'm going to volunteer for that. I said, well, you know what? I'll volunteer with you. I know we arrived in Vietnam on September 27th, uh, 1969. And when we got off the plane, you see all these sandbags. And we landed in Cameron Bay. Cameron Bay was one of the uh, swift boat bases. And it was the headquarters for Coastal Squadron 1. And then from there, we were going to be farmed out to one of five coastal divisions. And um, I remember seeing the sandbags and seeing, you know, you, you say, wow, we, we are definitely in a war zone. When you saw that, and you saw everybody in fatigues, and you, know, you had Army there, and Navy, and Air Force, and you said, whoa, nah, this is the real deal. So that was my impression. So on 
uh, Christmas Eve day, the t December the 24th. Uh, I think it was a C-130, flew us down to Catlow, and the boats were already there. And we were happy. So we get there, and I remember we were sleeping that night in Catlow in a, some barracks. And I remember the next morning, uh, just, I guess it was before the, um, you know, the truce went into, the Christmas truce went into effect, but it was my first introduction to a B-52 bombing uh, somewhere in the area. I don't know exactly where, but I mean, it was incredible. I, I couldn't believe how the ground would shake and, you know, and it's like, whoa. I mean, it, you know, I hadn't experienced that in Da Nang. In Da Nang, uh, we worked in Da Nang. Marines operated out of I-Corps where we were. That's it. And we did work some with the U.S. Marines up in I-Corps along the Kodai River. This particular day, again, I don't remember why, but we were transporting Korean Marines, these rocks, to Hoi An. I don't remember, you know, what, you know, why. All I know is somebody, you know, we were given an order, you know, take, pick these uh, rocks up, take them to Hoi An, a few miles up the river. So there was a sergeant and probably, you know, maybe 10 or 12 of these Korean Marines. And we had on board, uh, we had searched a couple of sampans in the river. And I remember, vaguely I remember, that we took several women prisoners because they didn't have paperwork and they may have had some contraband, no weapons, but they may have had contraband. I, I, I don't remember why and it's not particularly important. All I remember is we took them on board and handcuffed them because they had done something uh, and we were going to turn them over to Navy intelligence in Hoi An. <clears throat> so we had these Korean Marines on board too. And these were young Vietnamese women. And I was in the pilot house where I, that's where I normally stayed. When we were moving, I'm in the pilot house. And you've been listening to Oliver Halley recount his early days right up to his enlistment and volunteer enlistment in the Vietnam War. And my goodness, he said, there was never a doubt in my mind I'd join. Uh, it was what you did, again, growing up post-World War II. And by the way, he had a heart for the Navy, so not only did he know he was going to join, but he knew he was going to be out on the sea. He volunteered for swift boat duty in September of 1969, and everything changed. Let's return where we last left off. So, I'm up in the pilots. One of my, uh, you know, um, crew members came up to me. He said, Mr. Halley, he said, uh, we got a problem. He said, um, these uh, Korean Marines, they want to rape these women. I said, what? He said, yeah, he said, they're eyeing them over and they're pointing and, you know, and they're making motions and all this. I said, whoa. So I went back after and I went up to the sergeant. The, he was the senior petty officer, not petty officer, senior ranking guy, enlisted guy. There was no officer. And I'm trying to speak to him in English. I say, uh, you know, I'm pointing to say you, uh, women, you know, touch, no touch, you know? And you know, no English, no English, no, no. No touch, no touch. And the other guys, the other enlistment, I can see they're getting angry now. They're getting angry, and the sergeant is trying to, you know, 
even though he didn't speak English, uh, he, he, he understood what I was trying to say. Now he's getting confrontational. So I told my crew members, I said, uh, put the weapons on him. Put them on him. And it was, it was tense. It was very tense. They, they, they were determined they were going to have their way, and, and I was determined they weren't. And we made it to Hoi An. As soon as we, oh, and I told the sergeant, I said, you know, you, you touch women. I said, your captain, he cock it out you. Cock it out, your captain, he cock it out. I kept saying that, you know, cock it out you. And um, so anyway, we got to Hoi An, and as soon as we got there, I uh, reported these, the, you know, the sergeant and his troops to, you know, the our intelligence people, and they, you know, reported wherever it went. I have no idea what happened after that, but fortunately, these women, you know, were not assaulted. And I, I, it would have been impossible to let that have happened. It just some things you just can't do, you know. I mean, that's not our American values. It really isn't. I mean, even at that age, I understood that much. That's that's not who we are as Americans. We don't do that. And uh, now to segue into something a little bit amusing, um, I'm back down again in Coastal Division 11. You know, down there in the Gulf of Thailand and the Pacific Ocean area. And my Commodore, uh, Lieutenant Commander Bill Martin, he called me in. I was at wherever I was, he called me into headquarters immediately. So I go back, I had no idea what was going on, and he says, uh, he hands me a teletype. And I read this teletype, and my heart sank. And it, <laughs> as best I recall, I wish I had a copy of it. It said something like this, from Commander-in-Chief Pacific to, you know, Commander Coastal Squadron 1, Coastal Division 11, boom, boom, subject of presidential interest. I remember those words, of presidential interest. And I'm paraphrasing here, and it goes on to say as follows. Um, Ruth Halley Gorman the mother of Lieutenant J.G. Oliver G. Halley, um, Staten Island, New York, uh, has written to the President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, that her son is not getting his mail, and um, the President has ordered an immediate inquiry to determine why he isn't getting his mail. <laughs> and. Uh, and I was floored because I had never complained to my mother I wasn't getting my mail. That didn't happen. I never said a word that I, I wasn't getting my mail. Nothing. I, I was getting my mail. I, it wasn't a problem. So, so I, I'm, I'm speechless and embarrassed. I mean, this thing went out to the entire Seventh Fleet, this communication of presidential interest. So the Commodore was very sympathetic, and he said, well, we have to respond to this immediately. Um, what do you suggest? I said, well, Commodore, I'm getting my mail. I mean, I don't know where my mother's coming from. I, I mean, I can't pick up a phone to call her and ask her what's going on. So I remember we, we responded that uh, I had been in transit and had been moving around, and uh, apparently the mail hadn't kept up, but uh, there was no problem. Be assured that there is no problem. Everything's fine, and uh, uh, it's okay. So when I got home, um, I have a copy somewhere in a box, I know that, of a letter 
from a general in the Pentagon, how that works, you know, since I'm in the Navy, but who knows. But anyway, I remember it was a general in the Pentagon who had written my mother that on behalf of the president or something like that, they were looking into uh, why I wasn't getting my mail. Like I say, it was a very embarrassing thing to me, but, and I, and I asked my mother when I got home almost a year later, I said, why did you do that? I said, I was getting my mail, why did you do that? And all I remember her saying is, you weren't getting your mail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, I do have, uh, you know, uh, something that is very critical to who I am. And back in the 1930s, um, my maternal grandparents had a correspondence with a woman in Australia named Esther Buck. Esther Buck was a teacher in Australia. And she communicated, or wrote letters, I should say. They, they corresponded only by mail, and we're all of the same, roughly the same age. <clears throat> you remember back then, in the 70s, I'm talking about 60s and 70s, you had the, that paper, you bought it at the post office. I think they call it fly paper because it was so light. And you would write a letter and then you would fold it. Remember that? You would fold it over and put a stamp on it. But it was so light and you'd send it by airmail because it was cheaper. Back then, if you remember, there were airmail rates versus first class, whereas today there's no distinction. Okay, so this correspondence, my, my grandfather, my mother's father, and her mother, they were both educators, as was my mother in New York. And they had this correspondence. They got through the Parker Pen Company. It was just one of those professional things. And, and over the years, they got to know each other only by mail. They had never spoken. So when my grandfather became too sick, my mother picked up the correspondence. So we're talking probably about the late 1940s, early 1950s. So my mother be wrote to Esther Buck and they corresponded, you know, maybe once a month, once every couple months. And I remember Miss Buck, that's what I called her, she would send us little trinkets for Christmas, that kind of thing. But again, they never spoke. All of this was by mail, all these years. So now I'm in Vietnam, and it was arranged that I would meet Miss Buck on R&R. And I was lucky. I got two R&Rs. first one was in June of 1970. I went to Hong Kong. And then the second one, the Commodore was really generous about that, went to Sydney. So my mother arranged by mail for me to meet her. So I was pretty excited, too. This is a big deal. And the way it was going to work is I was going to meet her at her home and then my mother was going to call while I was there. Now again, we're all of the same age. These young people have no idea. But when you called internationally back then, you had to call the overseas operator. Remember that? You called, Maybe you don't because if you never made an international call, it wasn't very common. It was expensive. But you call the international operator and you'd say, I'd like to place this call to Sydney, Australia. And the international operator would tell you that it might be an hour, it might be two, it might be three, depending on the traffic, before they could get a line. So the plan was hopefully it would all fall into place. While I was there, my mother would be calling in. The date was September 8th, 1970. And I, I've written a book, but it pertains to this business I have, this speaking business. 
And I have a chapter in the book called Life-Changing versus Life-Shaping uh, Experiences. September 8th, 1970, changed my life forever. Forever. And you're listening to Oliver Halley. And again, we want to thank the Veterans History Project at the Atlanta History Center for this story. And if you have a story like this of anyone who's served anywhere, anytime, and I'm talking letters from way back when. We've read some letters from listeners and folks who care about what we're doing here on this show from even the Civil War. And we love performing those letters, telling soldiers stories of sacrifice. Uh, we don't do anything but take these stories seriously. So send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And by the way, on the Your Stories button on our website, there's a nice space where you can type up a summary of any story you'd like to submit. Let's pick up where we last left off. September 8th, 1970. Changed my life forever. Forever. I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but I think about it. I told you earlier in this interview, in the beginning, that my mother and father were only children. I had no relatives. And, and on my father's side, in particular, a lot of mysteries that I never knew the answers to. My father had committed suicide on, Mar on May the 9th, 1966. I was in college. I was 20 years old. I was a junior in college at the time. And in that book that I wrote, I put in there that, you know, he just couldn't outrun the demons that had chased him from the Third Reich. And he, as I said earlier, he had built up this legend. He was in this German underground movement, and they got into street fights and all of that. Well, it turned out that's all true. That part is all true. What never made sense to me as I got older was... Why would a wealthy family, because my father came from uh, a wealthy family. He was an only child. His father was a very prominent surgeon. And I didn't know until I sent you the story of New York Times. I didn't know until this year, until this year, February of this year, that he had actually been a, a physician for Kaiser Wilhelm and Tsar Nicholas of Russia. I didn't know that until this year from the New York, and Sue has seen the, the story in the New York Times, 1939, when he was killed in a car accident. So anyway, he had committed suicide four years earlier. And I'm sitting with Miss Buck, and she, she had never married. She was a woman probably in her 70s at the time. And she was so excited to see me. I mean, oh, she was just fluttering here, fluttering there. I, I'm so excited to finally meet somebody from the Halley family after all these years. This is, oh, so happy. Finally, you know, this is wonderful. And I can't wait for your mother to call, you know. I'm just so looking forward to that. And then she said as follows. She said, and I don't remember her exact words. I was too stunned, and so I'm close, but this, these are not the exact words. I just don't remember what they were. I wish I did, but I don't. She said something like this. Did your mother 
ever reconcile with her father for marrying outside the faith? And I looked at Miss Buck and I said, Miss Buck, I don't understand your question. My mother and father, you know, were Protestants. Um, I don't know what you mean by marrying outside the faith. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, your mother was Jewish, she married your father, but I said, my mother's not Jewish. I said, of course she is. And, and she, my head at that moment exploded. I, you know how you get shocking news? Whatever it is, really shocking news? That's what happened to me. It was like that. Because I had experienced anti-Semitism growing up. I, I grew up a Methodist. But I experienced a lot of anti-Semitism. I don't kid anybody, you know, that I don't know. I look Jewish, okay? I mean, there is a stereotype, and, and I'm one of them. My head exploded. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So she saw the look on my face, and she stopped short. She says, oh, my God, I hope I didn't say anything I shouldn't have said. And I said, no. I said, I'm glad you did. But she didn't say another word. Well, my mother called in, and we all had a very nice chat, didn't bring any of this up, and Miss Buck was so excited to finally talk to my mother. And I uh, left Vietnam, I think September 23rd, so it was a couple of weeks or so later, and got to San Francisco, and I out-processed uh, from uh, active duty to the reserves, it took, I think, five days. I was at uh, Treasure Island, you know, about an hour a day, you, you know, did administrative stuff and then they cut you loose. So at the end of the week, uh, I flew from San Francisco to New York. A friend of mine picked me up and I went to my mother's house until I could find a place to live a couple weeks later. And I'm unpacking my sea bag and this has really been weighing on my mind. And as I'm unpacking my sea bag, I said to my mother, why didn't you tell us we were Jewish? And she said, what? Where did you get that nonsense from? Those are her words. And I said, Miss Buck told me. And my mother, very uncharacteristically, she was very polished, very educated. Very uncharacteristically, she said, Miss Buck is a liar. She didn't talk that way. I said, no. I said, Miss Buck uh, told the truth. And very uncharacteristically, my mother completely broke down. I mean, really broke down crying. And she said, please don't tell your brothers. And I said, I have to. Well, as the years went by, I would try and talk to my mother about this. She shut it down. She'd act like I wasn't even in the room. If I want to change the subject, she'd look up and talk about it. She wouldn't talk about it. Absolutely refused. So I never learned anything from my mother, nothing. And she and my father had destroyed a lot of documents. So over the years, it would take me too long to tell, and it doesn't fit in with the Vietnam part of the story, so I'll just kind of synopsize it real quickly. I learned a lot on my own. Um, through reading books, and then when the internet came into being, learned a little bit. And so the bottom line is this. 
My grandfather on my father's side was Jewish, for sure, 100%. I have the records to support that. He was Jewish, and my maternal, my, my paternal grandmother was a Lutheran. My father was raised a Lutheran. So in the Jewish faith, you know, the bloodline carries on the mother's side, not the father's side. So even though my father was half Jewish, he's, he wouldn't be recognized as Jewish by Jewish people. Um, so that, that comment about, did your mother ever reconcile with her father? In effect, my mother married outside the faith, even though my father was half Jewish. And you've been listening to Oliver Halley and what a story he's telling. And this is just a side story. But these side stories, well, they inform so much about all of our lives. September 8th, the day that changed his life forever. And my goodness, why didn't you tell us we were Jewish? What an identity crisis for this young man. Also, he was learning that everything he ever thought was true. Because he always thought he was Jewish. He looked Jewish. Where did you get that nonsense? The mom said. And my goodness. She then said, Miss Buck is a liar. And he knew. Then he knew for sure that it was true. And then the reality set in and his mom, well, she just broke down. And she just started to cry, revealing her human side, but never came clean. Never told the real story. And by the way, we, we learn that again and again here on Our American Stories, particularly the World War II generation. So many of them just wouldn't come clean about what happened. Maybe it was so horrible they couldn't process it. Who knows what the reasons are? A beautiful story. And again, send yours to ouramericanstories.com. And by the way, if you like what you hear, we are a nonprofit, and always we're looking for support from our listeners. $5, $10, $25, whatever you can spare. We work hard to bring you these stories, not the ugly, not the bad, not the insipid. The stories that, well, we all want to hear. Go to ouramericanstories.com. There's a donate button. Give what you can. Let's continue with Oliver Halley. So, um, my, my father and his mother were estranged. I don't know why to this day. That's a secret that'll go to the grave. I will never know the answer to that. It kills me not to know, but, but I'll never know. I do not know. Um, my father would write her letters. She lived in Queens when we lived on Staten Island. My father would write her letters, and I still see this in my mind's eye. They would come back unopened, and there would be a stamp, um, you know, this kind of stamp on the envelope, and it would be of a hand pointing this like this, and it would say, return to sender, refused, with check mark refused. And she died in uh, February 1959, but I never met her. And don't, to this day, I don't know why they were strange. I have no idea. So that day changed my life forever. When you find out you, uh, there's more to your past and it's very different than you were brought up to believe, um, it, it, that has a profound effect. So that's a life-changing experience, life-shaping, without question was my time in the Navy and certainly in Vietnam. I went over to Vietnam, I was 23 years old as an officer in charge of a swift boat. I came home, I was 24. And to have that kind of responsibility at that young age, if that won't shape you, nothing will. Uh, after Vietnam, um, I spent a year 
trying to get into law school, but working uh, this odd job I had had when I was in high school just to mock time. I got into law school. I began in August of 1971 at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And <clears throat> Um, I went through th went through law school knowing that my career plan was to become an FBI agent. There was never any doubt that's what I wanted to do. I had formed that plan years earlier when I knew I wasn't going to be chief of naval operations, and I figured that out in high school, by the way, <laughs> in high school. So my career in the FBI, you have two tracks, you know, the investigative side, and then you can choose to go into management. It's not like the military, you know, it's mandatory promotions that you're at. You know, people choose in the FBI if they want to go into management. And I, I had no interest in it. After having uh, the experience that I had in the Navy, particularly in Vietnam, I figured nothing could rival that. Nothing. Nothing. Not even close. And then, as, and I love the FBI. My career, I had 28 years. It was a free ticket to a show. I loved it. But uh, to be kind, uh, the best leadership I saw was in the Navy. I, uh, I started late in life with children. I'm married to uh, Molly Johnson Halley. She's from Charleston, South Carolina. She, uh, I met her in New York. She was an FBI agent as well, and she was chief division counsel um, for the FBI office in Atlanta for most of her career, but we met in New York. And I was just short of 41 when my oldest daughter, Caitlin, was born just short of 42 when my second daughter, Victoria, was born. They're Irish twins. They're 12 days short of a year apart. And then my son is in his fourth year of medical school at Emory. And this is only a coincidence. It was not planned this way. But my son, Tyler, is uh, following in the footsteps of his grandfather, who was an ear-nose throat surgeon. Um, and that's a coincidence. He didn't do it for that reason. He didn't even really know about it until recently, so. Uh, I'd like to close with this. Um, one of the things that my father did when we lived in Brooklyn, and I was a young boy, and I remember so vividly, on a lot of weekends, he would go into Manhattan, and he was a volunteer for Church World Service. In Church World Service, even to this day, I think, sponsors immigrants. And my father went down there, and you can picture this. These ships coming in from Europe with thousands of refugees. Coming to New York, you had organizations like Church World Service sponsored these people. People who had nowhere to go, no homes, lost families. That had a very profound effect on me. If you read the words, and I know you have, of Emma Lazarus on the Statue of Liberty. Give me your poor, your wretched, your teeming masses, however. And my father and his family, before I was born obviously, came into New York, 
can only imagine what they thought when they saw the Statue of Liberty. So he volunteered his time to help refugees, and one of them came to live with us for several years, Sergei Shilhakov. He was a Russian. He'd been a veterinarian in, in the Russian Army and Russian Cavalry. I, I don't remember whether he was captured or what happened, but either way, he ended up in a refugee camp in Europe after the war. He was on one of these ships. What I remember is, as he was coming off the ship and people being processed, my father, I remember the story saying, you know, he's one of mine. He came with him and he lived with us for several years and then for health reasons he moved to Miami, but we stayed in touch and I last saw him when I was in the Navy. Uh, our ship was in Fort Lauderdale and I called him and I spent the night with him. A wonderful man, A wonderful man. He loved this country, what it gave him. He lost everything in the war. He lost his family, everything. I think of my father and all of that, and you say, how can you not give back? You know, how, how can you not do that? This country gave my father and his family a home when they were evicted from Nass. Was the Vietnam War one of those wars like World War Two? that, uh, you know, you're fighting to defend your country. Uh, I, I, I can't say that it was, and I won't. But, but that's not the point. The point was that military service was something that came to be expected, and people of my generation, not everybody, obviously, we had a lot of people who didn't share my view, but a lot did. You know, we, we did our time. We came back from Vietnam. Um, People say, well, you know, do people spit on you or anything? No, no, I never had that. Nobody cared. When I got back, nobody cared. You were a Vietnam veteran, so what? In law school, in my class, we probably had 10 or 15 Vietnam veterans. You know, we, we would talk occasionally. We were probably, you know, we weren't all close friends, but we got along very well. We could at least, if there was anything about the war that was still going on, we could talk about it. You didn't talk about it with other people. They didn't care. It was irrelevant. It meant it was just they couldn't relate to it. It was only when Ronald Reagan um, dedicated the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to the Vietnam missing, and I watched it on TV live. Oh my God, that was powerful. And Ronald Reagan made it okay to be a Vietnam veteran. He was that was the first. It was okay. Then I could wear a T-shirt, you know, Vietnam veteran. I never did before that. Never. I didn't talk about it. Not, I didn't talk about it because, you know, oh, I can't talk about it. I have bad memories. Oh, I have PTS. No, nothing to do with that. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Um, but, that, yeah, that was it. So I went on with my life, and life was good. My FBI career was fantastic. It was a free ticket to a show. I traveled all over the world toward the end, uh, you know, with the FBI. And... Um, I, I was very lucky in my in my life. I really was lucky. Probably I got a few lucky breaks along the way. Didn't have to, but I did. And I'm grateful for them. And I've got some plans in my head for what I'm going to do about paying it forward. And we're looking forward to hearing more from Oliver. What a storyteller. What a life lived. And again, a special thanks to the folks at the Veterans History Project 
at the Atlanta History Center. And again, we're always looking for stories like this from you, our listeners. And my goodness, what a life well lived after serving in Vietnam, serving in the FBI for 28 years, a free ticket to the show, he said. Late in life to children like me, 41 when he had his daughter Caitlin, 42, Victoria Tyler, who is in medical school carrying on a family tradition. But that story of him greeting refugees, I know that one because my immigrant grandparents made me do the same thing. And that was to go and volunteer. Uh, Catholic uh, grandfather, an Italian grandfather, was always grateful for the Catholic services that were provided to him when he came to the country with nothing. And my goodness, to take in somebody like Sergei, a Russian refugee, to see a family do something like that, to take in a stranger, uh, what a beautiful thing. And again, what Christians do in this country uh, is overwhelming and not reported enough. And certainly the stories aren't told enough of how Christian love uh, is, well, is on display and has been on display throughout our history. All those refugees coming to New York City with lost families and nowhere to go. I love what he said about Sergei. He was a wonderful man. He loved his country. He had lost everything in the war. Everything. He also said, Oliver, the country gave my father and his father a home. So true. Oliver Halley's story here on Our American Stories.